Sir Albert and Keelan Brass from Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly Monday appearance. This is weekly Monday appearance, the managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron, and what follows. As he does every week, Dave Cameron endeavors in this edition of the program to analyze all baseball of particular note. This week, left-hander pitcher, left-hander and pitcher for the Los Angeles Angels, Andrew Mahaney has agreed, has agreed with Fantex, which is a company. Fantex is a company. He has agreed to sell a stake in his future earnings. He has agreed to sell a stake for approximately $3 million in his future earnings. And he is the first instance, NFL players have done it, but he is the first Major League Baseball player to agree to such an arrangement. It's a situation that is uh, ripe for examination. I ask one immediate question, though, which is, should I, should one, should I, should one invest in Andrew Haney? That's the question. And we hear Dave Cameron's response on that. Also, not related at all, but uh, related insofar as Dave Cameron addressed it in electronic print this past week, Matt Carpenter, the person of Matt Carpenter. Matt Carpenter this year is uh, on pace and very likely, in fact, to more than double his career high in home runs. Perhaps related, perhaps not. Matt Holliday, his teammate back in February, said it would be great to see Matt Carpenter hit 25 home runs, regardless of whether those uh, those two facts are related. It's true that Matt Carpenter has both changed his approach and altered his results. Uh, he's he's a different type of batter, and yet the net production is roughly the same. I asked Cameron uh, at least one question about that and what follows. Uh, I also asked him at least one question about Ruben Amaro. Ruben Amaro becomes, I think, the fifth, the fifth GM to be dismissed from his role this year, and... He also, he does so, uh, he does so by means of another euphemism. In this particular case, the Phillies, uh, his employer, the Phillies, elected not to extend the, his contract effective immediately, uh, if essentially rendering, essentially releasing Ruben Amaro. As, Cam, uh, as Cameron, about the uh, the highs and the lows of Ruben Amaro's tenure as general manager, uh, Cameron also comments upon an unnamed uh, Fangraphs author's mental health. At the very least, he should be able to live uh, you know, a stable lifestyle for most of the rest of his life. All of that, uh, all of that to follow, all of that to be examined what follows. But before we move to that conversation, I would be remiss. And also in breach of contract, not to mention draft, the draft app, which is available, uh, for iOS and for the Android operating system, which, uh, which means it's available from the app store and also from, for example, Google Play and any other, other outlets that offer apps to people who own Android devices let me tell you about this draft let me tell you right now about it directly are you familiar with these daily fantasy games the daily fantasy games like FanDuel, DraftKings. this is not unlike that except for this one fact it is truly mobile draft is truly mobile it's the first daily fantasy game designed specifically for your mobile device and it is very simple whether you're playing the major league baseball version of the game or perhaps the NFL version of the game, or perhaps the college football version of the game, all you need to do is to find an internet person, perhaps a random one, perhaps one uh, who is already a friend of yours uh, on the draft app, and you conduct a snake draft, each of you selecting five players, five athletes, who then accrue fantasy points, and then one of you, you or your opponent, is the winner. Are you interested in wagering money because you're so confident in which to waging American currency on uh, on this sort of thing, you're able to do that. And and if you pursue it, it's possible the Fangraphs Audio will benefit. Can't reveal that kind of information now, but I will remind you that draft 
The Draft app is available from the App Store and Google Play. Okay, that has been said. All of what has been said has been said. There's no debating it. Uh, what you can expect of what follows is, in addition to Fangraphs Audio, featuring Managing Editor Dave Cameron, which episode begins... Yeah, you were. Because you're late. Uh, hey, I actually have a question for you to start off the podcast. Okay, yeah. Uh, so you you have a dog named America. Yeah. Uh, with Donald Trump surging in the polls, are you taking advantage of this? And like when she's bad, it's like, America, go be great again. Yeah, I, well, um, I don't know. I mean, she's. I think she's maintained a pretty even level of greatness since we acquired her. Okay, so you're not you're not disappointed with her in trying to uh, you know like uh, get rid of all of the, uh, the parts of her that were imported, maybe? No, no, I don't think so. Um, I will say I will say that when my wife uh, speaks French to her occasionally, uh, my uh, America does begin to growl, growl and snarl. Well, she sounds like Donald Trump's kind of dog. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, she's a little bit suspicious of that, and I cannot I cannot guarantee that she loved Canada. However, I can tell you. <clears throat> the sample size is not great on this. However, uh, do you know, uh, I don't know how much time you ever spent crossing the border from Canada back into the United States or vice versa? Just a little bit. Mm. Yeah, that's the same for me. I haven't done a lot of it. Uh, but I will say uh, that both times we've done it in recent memory, we've informed, you know, it's, it's always a little bit, even if you have nothing to hide, it's a little bit of a fraught uh, moment when you pull up to the gate there, you know. And they say, oh, you know, you, you bring anything back in the country or whatever. Yeah, I, you know, I find myself, I feel guilty even though I'm not even hiding anything. Yeah, guilty until pr- proven innocent. That's how I feel. Yeah. But then uh, in both occasions, uh, most notably this last time, uh, in this case it was a, yeah, it was a, a man. He said, uh, what's your dog's name? And I said, America. And he was like, that's a good, he's, <laughs> that was a good name. I felt like we were on his side as soon as I said <laughs> that, you know. These people... These people, not only are they trying to hurt the country, they love it so much that they've named their dog America. So was this an American working at the American side of the border when you were coming back in? Right, exactly, yeah. yeah okay, yeah. so when you were going up, maybe you should have been like, this is my dog, Poutine. Poutine, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, we didn't We didn't do that. Okay, well, ne- maybe, uh, maybe next time. Yeah, it wouldn't... Um, it, really, it wouldn't make a difference to the dog. They barely know their own names anyway, I guess. Uh, I mean, I guess that's kind of true if you have a poorly trained dog. <clears throat> well, I think that what when you say their name, it's just a word that gets their attention. Right. I mean, they've associated that with uh, you know, they yeah, it's a word association. Yeah. Right. They don't understand that that is their identity, but they know to turn and look in your direction when they hear that phrase. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. But the, I I could think of some other words which I'm not even able to utter aloud right now for the reaction they would get out of. Uh, the dog, which is near me, um, but the one F O O D, which oh, yeah. now even when I spell that, uh, it gets her attention. America, do you want to go on a walk? Yeah, that's uh, yeah. Well, we do O U. We say O U T, but yeah, those uh, those signifiers. America, uh, do you want to go out and get no, some food? Stop, stop saying it. <laughs> stop saying it. You're... I'm just gonna work this in. Like the rest of the conversation, oh. I'm gonna be like that pitch was outside. Oh, I, get, I see what you're doing. Yeah, right. I see what you're doing, Dave Cameron. 
Yeah, you're trying to make your life harder. You try, yeah. Uh, is there anything? Uh, is there any way I can make your life harder? Uh, continue working for Fangraphs. Okay, <laughs> very good. Uh-huh. I was thinking. Uh, I was uh, I was approached recently by by Buck Buck French. Oh, like personally? Like he yeah. came up to you on the street? No, no, no. I mean, we, we've been we've been having an email correspondence, and he wants to help me. Uh, he wants to create a situation for me where uh, I could sell in you know I could sell shares of my future earnings. Yeah, I bet those would be uh, penny penny stocks. <laughs> penny, yeah, uh-huh. yeah. Borders, that, that was that was the point. Yeah, yeah. Uh, any opinions on that, Dave Cameron? It's an interesting thing. Uh, Craig Edwards wrote about it uh, today for the site. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a kind of a fascinating concept. We've talked about it previously. I think over the last few years, I think most notably with Mike Trout uh, a few years ago, and mm-hmm. kind of when these players sign these long-term kind of under market contracts. One of the arguments that I and other people have made is that this isn't uh, their sole recourse for financial security. Usually the pro long-term deal argument, even like the Trout Longoria type ones where they're clearly leaving money on the table, is, uh, you know, if they get injured and they never have a chance to, you know, make the big money, this is better than that. So they're kind of securing a high floor for themselves and, you know, there's huge diminishing returns past like $100 million on future money. So who cares if you get $180 million or $250 million? As long as you just get enough to set yourself for life, that's all that really matters. And I think the counter-argument that I and others have put forward is teams should not and are not the only sole recourse for financial stability for a major league player. And I think it's interesting to see uh, you know, third parties kind of officially become an option for players who say, you know what, I'm willing to, you know, cap my earnings potential. And, you know, in this case, Andrew Keaton, taking a 10% uh, haircut, essentially, on his total earnings that he could make in his career in exchange for $3 million up front. And, you know, he was a first-round pick, so he already got a couple million dollars. So, you know, uh, after taxes and agent fees and everything, he should, you know, have a couple million dollars left in the bank at this point. Uh, and, you know, that should be enough to to help him not have to necessarily worry about his long-term retirement planning. I mean, at least in the, at the very least, he should be able to live, uh, you know, a stable lifestyle for most of the rest of his life. He's not necessarily set for life yet, or his kids aren't, and he can keep playing and get, and get there. But at least now, he doesn't have to worry about, you know, working at a grocery store in five years. Should I, uh, should, uh, <clears throat> should I invest in this? Uh, and, and, and I don't, I, perhaps I don't mean me specifically, but what would compel an individual to do so or not do so? Yeah, so I think one of the interesting things, and Wendy Thurm actually wrote about this when Fantex uh, kind of announced their existence when they signed Vernon Davis, an NFL player, to their first deal and kind of came on board. Um, Wendy wrote about this a couple years ago, and, and uh, Craig linked to it, and it's worth reading for anyone who's interested in this. I think, you know, certainly read Craig's piece, but also read Wendy's, um, is that there's risk here that's not just associated with Andrew Heaney, right? So you're not buying a stock like you would on the NASDAQ or the Dow Jones or something where it's a, you know, a easily tradable, sellable, commodity uh, where there's clearly a market that's going to exist and you, you don't necessarily, like if you buy stocks in Apple, uh, you don't necessarily have to worry about, you know, the fact that the stock market isn't going to exist uh, when you go to sell those shares regardless of what Apple's doing. Something, something horrible would have to happen yeah, along I mean, right, way. at that point, like, you know, you're, st- <laughs> you're probably just trying to find food, <laughs> or, you know, like okay, yeah, yeah. for your gun or something. Um, but I think with this company, so not only are you betting on Andrew Heaney, you're betting on Fantex as well. Like, if they stop existing, you know, say, like, this 
venture doesn't work, and it might. I mean, I, I kind of have hopes that it will, and I'm rooting for them. But let's say they, they go under and they can't, uh, you know, pay their bills or something happens, some regulatory change puts them out of business. Uh, Andrew Heaney could pitch really well, but the company that you bought shares in their own exchange might not exist for you to sell or to get a dividend, essentially, is kind of how they're setting it up, is that they're going to pay you back whenever Andrew Heaney gets paid. If they go away and there's no one to pay you, it's not entirely clear how that's going to work. So um, there's some additional risk here beyond just, like, I think Andrew Heaney is going to make more than $33 million in his career, so therefore uh, I'm going to invest in this. Like, if you just have money to burn and you think it's kind of fun and you like Andrew Heaney, sure, why not? If this is, like, part of your retirement portfolio... Yeah, I I don't think I'm gonna recommend it. Okay. Yeah. So uh, so you have to. So if you were if you're doing very simple math to to evaluate what the what a likely or possible return on your investment would be, what are, you're looking both at the, the the likelihood that Andrew Heaney will surpass what is it like he needs, essentially needs to make like 33 million dollars. Yeah, he sold a 10% stake in his future earnings for 3.31 million. So right, so once he gets to 33.1 million uh, in career earnings, theoretically everything after that is uh, uh, positive residual for the investor. Okay, and but that, but then you have to also essentially multiply that by the likelihood that Fantex will be around when Andrew is making that money. Yeah, and you know, like I haven't read through their. Uh, uh, charter or the kind of their their prospectus, and so I don't know. Like there could be something in there that says like if this company fails, uh, you know, we'll disperse all our assets, and you know, there there could be some language in there protecting people who invest uh, in the players, and I would assume that um, that there's some corporate oversight, and given that they had to get this kind of run through the SEC, and um, I would assume it's not just set up as a Ponzi scheme where they're going to get a whole bunch of investors, and then this guy's going to go buy a boat and disappear. Like, I don't think that's what's happening here. Uh, but I don't, I mean, you know, I, I don't think we know exactly uh, what's going to happen if, in, say, in eight years, Andrew Heaney gets a $200 million contract, but Fantex is not a company anymore. Hmm. Maybe, 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 um, in a fit of generosity, Andrew Heaney will will uh, personally write a check to everyone who had invested with Fantex. I mean, it's an interesting thing, right? Like he's made a commitment. Like he's essentially sold. I mean, he got a loan. Uh, this is a secured loan, essentially. Um, I mean, I guess not technically a loan because he doesn't have to pay it back. But it's one way of looking at it. It's like he's just borrowed against his own future earnings. If Fantex goes away, uh, you know, he's still. He's still got the reward, right? Like, uh, I would imagine someone is going to buy up that debt. Like, right, this was the thing with like the housing bubble, right? There were all these collateralized debt or, uh, obligations where there were like lousy mortgages and people couldn't pay them, uh, and people were buying them up essentially really, really cheaply. So somebody still owned that debt, and you know maybe they said, you know, I'm only going to be able to recoup 10 or 15 or 20 percent of the value of the home, but it's something. Uh, I would imagine that if Fantex goes away, you know, someone, some venture capital person will be like, meh. Maybe I can't get all of the money, or, or maybe I can't, uh, you know, get this company back up and running, but I can, uh, you know, collect some portion of this. So I don't think Andrew Heaney's going to be off the off the hook and get to keep all of his money no matter what. We're not suggesting that he'd want to be I, anyway. Yeah, right. I mean, this has been a lot of conversation about this company failing when they just started. So sorry, Fantex, <laughs> for the uh, a podcast no. about what happens if your business goes away. But well, it's like, you know, it's an interesting yeah. thing to consider. Okay. All right. I was just, I was just wondering, does it, does it, does it make sense to do in any other, apply it to any other circumstances that are not athletes? 
Like, can you do this for like, I mean, essentially, wait a this second. This is kind of Kickstarter, right? So it's kind of Kickstarter. Is it also the same thing? So I went to, I went to a university, right? And the university gave me financial aid. Yeah. Or, you know, they gave me like a, I got like a grant. Right. And so at some level, isn't that what schools are doing? Because on the one hand, you could say, well, they're doing it out of the goodness of their heart. But in theory, they're attempting to assemble a student body, which later on, by means of uh, donation, charitable donations, will help the school run. Yeah, right. I mean, these these schools are making bets on people in order to raise their own profile and say, you know, like, oh man, if we get a president of the United States in our midst, that's going to help us, and you know, like, then we'll be able to attract more students who will pay their way. And so, right. I mean, like, part of this is uh, a bet on a higher return on investment uh, in the future. And and right. So I think, uh, you know, there are actually a decent amount of examples of this kind of thing uh, in 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 reality. I mean, I'll, I'll, I think this is, you know. In daily life, most of us have insurance, right? Like, you know, we have some kind of uh, monthly payment that we pay for homeowners insurance or car insurance or life insurance, whatever it is. Uh, and we say, I'm essentially capping my uh, future earnings by sending money to this company in exchange for selling off, like basically divesting myself of some risk. Uh, and that's what Andrew Hughes done. He has said, um, you know, I'm okay making 90% of my potential earnings in exchange for uh, not carrying the risk of not getting this $3 million payout right now. So he's just sold some risk for $3 million. And we all do this in various ways throughout our life. It's not, you know, an exclusive thing to baseball. This is just a, a normal thing where human beings, uh, you know, have some logical times to be risk averse. And, and there's a market where venture capitalists who have a lot of capital and, and don't necessarily need, uh, cash flow can create businesses that buy risk from individuals, uh, and they can make profit on that money. Uh, and it's a win-win because people shouldn't be carrying all that risk individually. How do I get a – this is somewhat related uh, because it gets rid of risk. How do I get an inheritance? Uh, have a rich parent who dies. Mm. Are there any other options? Have a rich uncle who dies. I just want like a uh, <clears throat> like a fixed amount of income – not too much, you know, just enough to live so that I so that I can just do what I want to do all the time. So you want to be uh well off. Yeah, I guess. You should not be a baseball writer. Mm. Yeah, but that, but but without working though at all, you know what I mean? Okay. Then your parents should not have done whatever they did with their lives. <laughs> yeah, I know. You I need to they, go they, they you think need to that's the time machine, go back 60 years and get them to become, you know, like uh inventors of a personal computer. Yes, they should that do would, that. That would have done well for you. If you were given a time machine, Cameron, what would be your first move to help your parents invent the personal computer or alternatively kill Hitler? Uh, I think I would probably go for the PC because someone was going to kill Hitler whether I needed to do it personally or not. Like he was always going to die. Uh, yeah, it but, affect- but it's when he dies is the point because um, there was the part where if he had died a little younger, um, all those people would have been murdered, remember? Well, someone might have just risen up and taken his place, right? Like, we, we've killed a lot of terrorists, and there are still terrorists out there. Like, and it's yeah. not like terrorism ended when we killed Osama bin Laden. So there was probably a, you that, a young you, Hitler who didn't have the chance. He was crowded out by the actual Adolf Hitler. Uh-huh. And maybe that guy was even worse. Maybe letting Hitler live saved lives. You ever think about that since two weeks? I, did, I never did. Good. I, I don't not. think your opinions are going to be popular. <laughs> I think that there's a decent chance that that last comment might get me fired. So we'll see. Maybe I should go sell some of my 
by risk in uh, Fantax. In that is the point. You know, people do not bring that up though when you when you're when you're talking about murderous despots. You yeah. don't think about how maybe by virtue of their charisma, they they actually crowded out uh, hypothetically more murderous despots. Yeah, right. We don't we don't actually know what the replacement level despot is, right? <laughs> or or the frequency at which they exist. Well, they they must be able to occur. Certain conditions have to exist anyway. Like there must be certain conditions that are just ripe for despotism anyway. Yeah, poverty, right? Isn't that like one of the main? Yeah, ones? poverty and like and yeah, and de- desperation of some sorts. Um, yeah, and yeah, in because poverty also I, I would assume makes you more susceptible to um, the vagaries of like ideology, right? You say, yeah, right. it's hard to motivate people who are well off because they're like, why would I do that? I already yeah, have right. a bunch of money. People need incentives in order yeah. to be motivated to act. And yeah. So, I mean, not to turn this into a, you know, four-hour hardcore history podcast or something. But uh, I do think that, you know, uh, we can't just say you do this one thing and it changes all these other things. I mean, people do this in baseball all the time, right? It's like, uh, oh, man, if that guy hadn't tried stealing a base uh, and getting thrown out right before, uh, that would have been a two-run home run instead of a solo home run. Well... If there's a guy on base, maybe the pitcher doesn't throw that pitch. <laughs> like, I mean, we can't just remove one variable and assume everything after that is constant. There's so much interactivity. It's, it's it would be really nice if the world could just be simplified. Yeah, that would be uh, that would be really great. Like, if the world was just made of Legos, and you're just like, oh, if I remove this, I know exactly what will happen. Yeah, it's, it does not seem to be the case, though. Yeah, no, I don't think it is. Um, okay, I'm gonna uh, give uh, you have to choose one of two letters that will define our next topic. Uh, either A or C. Uh, C. Okay, C is Matt Carpenter. C stands for Carpenter. Okay. Um, you wrote about Matt Carpenter for just a bit outside at Fox. Yeah, I did. And Carpenter's an amazing thing, uh, which is I think I think wait he's he's about to he's on the verge the precipice of doubling his uh, season season high for home runs. Is that right? Uh, yeah, he's really close. I think yeah. two away or something. Right. Four, maybe and, three away now. And it appears. It appears as though one thing is definitely true and another thing is maybe true. The thing that's definitely true is that he's altered his approach. Um, uh, yeah, he's absolutely doing uh, a lot different. Right. He swings, but he's swinging at uh, pitches that are higher in the zone. He's missing more of them, but then when he's making contact, he's hitting them further typically. Yeah, he's become he's, – he's basically turned himself from – like he was Joe Maurer or a Joe Maurer kind of hitter, uh, and now he's more – I don't know. I'm not sure what kind of hitter this would be. I mean, like uh, Andre Ethier or something. I mean, he still draws walks, and so maybe not. But he's like you know more of a a 20, 25 home run guy at least this year, uh, and a guy who um, you know is is striking out significantly more than he used to. Uh, you know, so he's making less contact, and he's just transformed into more of a you know kind of classic number three hitter type instead of a you know walks and doubles leadoff guy. Yeah, it, but as you point out though. The out, output, I mean, it, stripping it, and of course, this is something that um, concerns you, uh, which you've discussed in recent years, uh, is uh, context. Uh, we don't, it's, you know, it's hard to evaluate on a case-by-case basis. However, generally speaking, he's, a, he's the output is roughly the same in terms of production relative to league average. Right, yeah, he's different, but not better or worse, really. I mean, it seems like he's basically, and and this kind of fits with what we would have expected with sliding scales, right? Like, um, it's probably, uh, you know, 
a curve that you can move along and say, like, if I have this much contact, I can have this much power, and, and you're kind of making a trade-off between them. If you want to try and, you know, hit 320, you can try and slap the ball to left field and be Tony Gwynn, and you might, I mean, if you have really good back control, you could maybe do it. But if you want to hit 40 home runs, you can't have that swing. Like, <laughs> they, they do not produce... uh the same results, and so you have to choose between what kind of swing you want, and it seems like Matt Carpenter has maybe chosen to swing harder or swing at different pitches or both, uh, and it's led to an uptick in, in swings and misses, but also an uptick in home runs, and so he's just kind of uh, changed who he is without going... Uh, to a different plane of, of goodness. I suppose it's, I suppose it's pretty, it's, it's still exceptional that he was able to change his approach th- this dramatically. It's not the most dramatic, but it's rather dramatic. Uh, and yet, and yet, I mean, even to produce along the same lines with the changed approach, that is still pretty exceptional. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, this is a talented player, right? Yeah. Like, he's got skills that, uh, that are, um, capable of, of performing at the big league level. And, you know, I think the nice thing is he's still walking. So it's not like he radically transformed. He's not like, you know, swinging at everything. He didn't go to a 50% swing rate and become Pablo Sandoval or something. So, you know, the core basic, you know, take pitches, work counts, that, that is still there. It's just less extreme than it used to be. Right. So here's the, the second part of it, right? Yeah. Is This appears to have been in response to comments or is possibly in response to comments that his teammate Matt Holiday made back in February, uh, in an article for the the Post Dispatch to uh, Derek Gould of that same uh, former podcast, Derek Gould. Um, he said, "Yeah, it'd be nice to see Matt Carpenter hit some more home runs." Yeah, I mean, he basically he basically nailed exactly. He was like, "I want to see Matt Carpenter draw, hit 25 homers and draw 80 walks," and that's almost exactly what Matt Carpenter is going to do this year. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I would imagine if it wasn't just Holiday, like this was probably, you know, a few other people as well, and Holiday might have just been expressing uh, an, an opinion supported by others. Uh, but I think in general, we know that, you know, uh, even on kind of forward-thinking teams and organizations like the Cardinals, most players still evaluate each other by batting average and home runs and RBIs. Like the triple crown stat still rules supreme, and. I think if you're a player who kind of grew up with that mindset and you say, hey, look, I can hit 280 with 10 homers or I can hit 270 with 25 homers, you know, they'll choose the extra home runs over the the extra walks. And, well, ultimately that's something that probably benefits Matt Carpenter, who I'm still – where was he on the arbitration calendar at this point? Well, he signed a long-term deal, so he's off the the charts. He doesn't – okay. He doesn't need to do it. Was it a good deal? What did he do? Uh, I think he got – Fifty-five million for six years or something like that. It was one of those deals that's like it got a little bit of pushback because Carpenter was a late bloomer and kind of uh, one of these guys that um, you know was seen as a very kind of low ceiling type. Where when he came up, he was kind of a utility player and didn't have a lot of power. And so even when he was putting together really good seasons, um, the scouting expectation was that he was never going to really turn into a star. I think he's basically shown that that's wrong. He's a four-win player. He's one of the best players in baseball. Um, and so, you know, it's turned out to be a, a pretty nice bargain for the Cardinals. But it's also not clear that this was some huge savings for them because he never really succeeded in ways that arbitrators were going to, you know, go bananas over. He didn't right. see a lot of bases. He didn't hit a lot of home runs before this year. Uh, wasn't a big RBI guy. Like, if you go into arbitration and your skill set is like, you know, I draw 100 blocks and I play okay defense and I'm unathletic, even though I'm unathletic, like, you're probably not going to break the bank. I like it. He's one of my favorite players. I don't know if me the, too. The I manager. love Matt Carpenter. Yeah. I, I think guys like this are uh, the best part about baseball for me. You know who else? I, you know who I like quite a bit is Michael Brantley. Yeah, very similar skill set, 
to what Carpenter used to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Although Brantley hit Brantley hit a bunch of home runs last year, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he had a power spike last year, but he didn't trade contact in order to get them. He just got better. Oh yeah, he did. Okay. <laughs> he was really good last year. He was he's been quite good for a couple yeah. Of years. Oh, yeah. But that really worked out too. Yeah. I mean, that's also possible. Guys just improve sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, okay, wait, what, what were we talking about Carpenter? Oh yeah, do you know of any situations where, can you think of any obvious situations either where a teammate is like, oh, you should, you should try this, or a player, a player announces the beginning of the season. Well, we always hear, I think like during spring training you hear a lot, you hear like, I'm gonna try and steal bases this year. Yeah. It seems to be like, you know, among position players, that's like the number one promise you hear. But do you ever hear a player announce like, yes, this year I will trade off one skill, uh, you know, or trade off uh, one number for another. That's that's what I'm go- going to do as I enter the year. No, I think what they always talk about is improving, right? Like this is the week. The thing I'm not good at is the thing I'm going to try and work on. So you know, like whatever. Maybe Hanley Ramirez next year will be like, I'm going to work on my defense. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually they isolate some kind of weakness in their game and talk about how they're going to get better at that. I don't think what they generally do is say, this is the thing I'm really good at. I'm going to be less good at that in order to, uh, you know, make up for some of my other deficiencies. Usually they just talk about raising their game to a whole other level. I think it's. Pretty unusual. And Carpenter didn't say he was going to hit 25 homers and draw 80 walks. You know, that was Holiday. But uh, I think it's unusual for players to be kind of this blunt about uh, a good player. Maybe, you know, they want him to make some adjustments. Usually it's like, yeah, we, we want him to keep all of the good things and then fix all of his bad things, too. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I guess it, that's funny that Holiday is it. What's Holiday doing this year? Getting injured. Oh, sorry, Matt Holiday. Yeah. Yeah. A, I believe that is currently, uh, as we speak, I believe uh, it has become the, let's see, the NL Central has become the second tightest divisional race, uh, perhaps somewhat surprisingly. Yeah, you know, if you had a time machine, back to this time machine idea, maybe yeah. going back to the preseason and betting that the Washington Nationals would be in second place with the largest gap between them and the first place team, mm-hmm. that would be a bet to make money on. Because I think the Nationals were projected to win that division by like what, 10 or 15 games or something. Like there was a huge gap between them and the rest of the division in the preseason predictions. For you to say, okay, like, you know, whatever. Things happen, guys get injured, you know. We, we understand that stuff happens in baseball and the Nationals weren't 100% to win the division. But to think that the Nationals would finish in second, but be further out of first place than all the other second place teams, like for the Nationals to be further back than all the other teams who are in second place is kind of mind-boggling. With the exception of the Twins, it looks like. Oh, uh, is, is my fact wrong? No, no, you were exactly right. Yeah, you said second, oh. uh, I think second for this. It's uh, the Twins are 10, the Nationals are 9.5. So okay, uh, so it's close, right. Yeah, so maybe my nine. fact was true last night and then, and then yeah. it wasn't but, true. Uh, these, these races, though, have become um, um, tighter than one might have expected them to become. There's not really, there doesn't seem to be any good reason why the Rangers uh, should be as close as they are to the Astros, and yet there they are. Yeah, I mean, right. I mean, I think this is the AL West is just weird. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you look at it, like the Astros weren't supposed to be good, the Rangers weren't supposed to be that good, and they haven't played that well. Uh, they've just kind of sequenced their way to wild card contention because there aren't five good teams in the American League this year. Uh, right, the, the A's and uh, Mariners were supposed to be decent, and they've been bad. Uh, and the Angels were supposed to be better than this, and and for whatever reason, the Angels just having such a weird season. What they've had two like very long dominant stretches where they looked like one of the best teams in baseball, and then they've been you know crap the other four months of the year. Do those do those uh, stretches of dominance, um, and then the the sort of corresponding uh, stretches of of undominance of weakness, do they correspond at all with Mike Trout's performances? 
Somewhat. I mean, certainly, uh, they are a, uh, stars and scrubs team or, or star and scrubs team. Like, they, they are very dependent on Mike Trout. Uh, you know, no, no one has as much concentrated value in their best player as the Angels do. Uh, but I think also, uh, there was a stretch there right before the All-Star break when Albert Pools was hitting a home run like every other day. And he hasn't done that in a while. Uh, and you know, I think there are some ro- role-playing guys who, uh, performed well uh, at times, uh, when they were on those runs, especially on the pitching side. Like Hector Santiago was very good in the first half and has not been good at all in the second half. Uh, guys like that have, uh, kind of disappeared, uh, for the Angels. Yeah. Okay. Alright, let's, uh, 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 we're gonna get to topic A, which was, uh, do you have any guesses? Uh, C was Matt Carpenter. Topic so we're talking a. a Alfredo Simon. Nope. It's going to be uh, Ruben Amaro. Oh, yeah. I guess that does start with an A. Ruben Amaro, we've been collecting, Cameron, we've been collecting um, euphemisms for... Uh, we have been. we got to do what? For getting fired, yeah. Yeah. Would you like to... Do you, Can you summarize for us? Uh, let's see if I can remember what it was. Uh, they chose well, no, not no, no, to... No, 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 no. I would oh, could, you can the summarize the three. Yeah. No, we had like five, right? Okay, well, what? what? Uh, so, like, Jack Sorensic, they relieved him of his duties. Mm-hmm. Uh, Doug Melvin was transferred into a consulting role. Okay, yeah. Uh, Dan, Dave Dabrowski was, uh, re- mm, released from his contract. Okay. Uh, Ben Sherrington, uh, well, he, they, he chose not to remain in the organization. Right, yeah. He has, he has at least exhibited something like, some sort of more Free agency. Will. Yeah, yeah, right. right. Yeah. He decided to go. Yeah. And now Ruben Amaro, uh, they chose not to extend his contract effective immediately. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Elected not to extend the contract effective immediately. Yeah. I mean, because it was kind of like you could have like a free agent at the end of the year and be like, we're not going to resign this guy, but you don't like cut him. <laughs> but Ruben Amaro, they're like, we're not going to sign you after this year, so you're done now. I guess that's uh, – yeah, I guess that's right. They essentially – they cut him, right? Yeah, they basically released him, uh, but they term terminology. So can so can another team uh, pick him up to be their GM uh, while paying a league minimum at this point? I don't think that it works that way. Pass their GM waivers. Yeah, I don't. I don't think there's a. Yeah, I don't think that exists except for players. Yeah, right. Um, So I was thinking about so Amaro obviously. uh, Well, he has been at the helm of a club. A Phillies club that has been rather poor in recent years and was quite good in uh, some years before that. Uh, the organization generally has been the target of, or you know, has had to, has had older players who are making quite a bit of money, right? And anytime yeah. that's happening, well, we should clarify they were making a lot of money because Ruben Amaro gave it to them. Right, right, right. With a, in theory, with the uh, the approval of the of the ownership. Right, yeah, he didn't personally hand them checks, but right, he signed their contracts. Right, and of course, uh, if you want to sign good players or re-sign good players, frequently you accept the fact that you're paying you're paying them, you're going to be overpaying them in the future to get the best of their services in the present. Yes, unfortunately for Amaro, he didn't re-sign good players. He re-signed Ryan Howard. He gave a lot of money to Ryan Howard. Yeah. And then he signed Jonathan Pavelbon and yeah, I mean, he like misidentified which players to give a lot of money to. Right. So, uh, so I was actually, I, I guess, uh, it, these sorts of moments, um, give one an opportunity to reflect on the total career. Here's the thing I didn't know about Amaro. I guess I knew to, uh, at some degree or to some degree that he was a former player, but he played in the majors for a while. Yeah. He was never a star, but I think, you know, he had a role at, 
points. And he was, I think he was uh, named assistant GM by then general manager Ed Wade almost immediately after he retired from playing. Yeah, he was one of those guys who was basically groomed as a player. It was like, this guy's going to be a good executive. Yeah, I guess, can you think of any, are there any current examples of that? I was even looking at former players who are currently GMs, and the the only other sort of notable example is Dave Stewart. Yeah, and that wasn't nearly the same. I mean, he he took a very different path. I mean, I think, like, so you don't necessarily see him in the G, like, he's a manager now, but Craig Council, this kind of happened with him up in Milwaukee. Like, oh, yeah. uh, he retired, and they were like, we love Craig Council. We're going to make him a special assistant. We're going to kind of breed him for, uh, groom him, I guess. <laughs> Grooming is probably a better term than breeding. <laughs> <laughs> You're just going to put him in his stud and pasture yeah. <laughs> and see what happens. Uh, yeah, so the, yeah, right. So they groomed Craig Council uh, <laughs> to kind of take over some role in their front office. And then when uh, Ron Renneke got fired, they moved him down to the field staff and made him their manager. And, and now they're going to keep him as manager even though they're bringing in a new GM. So um, there are some examples. I think Michael Young, when he retired, he was like basically instantly hired by the Rangers to work in their front office as like some kind of ambassador or consultant or something. Um, so there have been a few of them, but not a lot of guys who've uh, quickly ascended. I, mean, I guess Ruben didn't know that quickly that he was an assistant GM for 10 years. But, uh, right, not that many players immediately go into prominent front office roles. Right, and, and it should be said, not that many former major leaguers, you know, guys who who, who played long enough, you know, to, uh, you know, over a span of years. Because, of course, Billy Bean played a little bit. Yeah, I yeah, think, sure. um, I mean, I don't know, Terry Ryan. I saw Terry Ryan... You know, was a, maybe a double lay player at one point. There were players who who were professionals, but they did not do much. But yeah, it, uh, with the exception of um, of Amaro, and, and now it must be only Dave Stewart, really, who had a career. Well, right. So I mean, Tony Larusa played, right, and uh, you know he's not technically a GM, but he's the boss of the GM. I mean, like, so and same from office, right? So, uh, but I think Larusa would qualify as like a you know. High-ranking baseball executive who had a playing career, right? Okay, yeah. Uh, I mean, I could be wrong, but didn't Larusso play in the majors? Yeah. I don't know. Well, do you have any? Uh, are there any websites where I go? Looks. Uh, we can go look that up, maybe. Yeah. Larusso. There you go. Yeah, he had 200 plate appearances. Yeah. Okay. Well, so not a not a substantial career, but he he did play. Yeah, he played. Yeah, one. Yeah, 1970 was his big year. He had over yeah. half of those plate appearances. Right. Um, yeah, I I don't know. Just, just I mean, it has become. If if you were to say if you were to do uh, make what is this a sweeping generalization if you were to jump to a conclusion those are the best kind of generalizations yeah, the sweeping the sweeping yeah. sort um, does the uh, does the lack of former players in GM roles does that just looking at that does that reveal something about how the position of general manager is perceived now relative to what it was say ten fifteen twenty years ago. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, front offices are way bigger now. Like, it used to be GM was like, you know, one of 10 or 12 guys in the office. Maybe not even that, maybe like five or six in some cases. And then you had all your scouts on the road, but it was like a small group. And, um, the GM was, you know, basically just leading kind of a, a, a half dozen, you know, a handful of guys who, uh, were his advisors and they were just kind of, Going along, doing what they wanted based on scouting reports in their eyes and, you know, maybe a little bit of analysis here and there. But for the most part, it was gut feel and just do what you want. 
then baseball changed, and now it's become a much more intense money-driven enterprise, and uh, the people who own baseball teams want to see you justifying why you're doing it, and now you have to give presentations to ownership, and you have to essentially be like a corporate executive. And, and I think guys who... Uh, you know, go to business school or law school or, you know, kind of come up through the, the techno, you know, the, the corporate ranks, uh, maybe more trained for the current baseball front office than guys who spend, you know, their 20s and 30s playing baseball and then have to go figure all that stuff out later. So what are the, uh, I know that Kyle McDaniel, uh, within the last couple of weeks, uh, he published a post looking at essentially GM prospects, which I think is a novel idea. Uh, do, do we have a sense who's most, Makes the most sense in terms of fit with the Philadelphia Phillies? Well, there's been a bunch of names thrown about, partly because Andy McPhail is going to be the guy doing the hiring. And so with McPhail, we know some things from his past, so with the Orioles and Cubs and, um, you know, kind of his executive history with the Twins as well. So we kind of know uh, his tendencies and we can speculate from there. Um, and, you know, he has some relationships with people in the game since he's, you know, worked in, in previous organizations. So, like one name has been thrown out there is Matt Klintek, who's currently the assistant GM of the Angels, um, but worked with McPhail in, in Baltimore, uh, also worked with uh, Kylie McDaniel in Baltimore when, when Kylie was with the Orioles. Uh, but Klintek has been named as a, a potential candidate, it kind of fits like the younger mold, uh, mm-hmm. but a guy that McPhail's comfortable with and wouldn't necessarily be like starting a new relationship from scratch. So if they go young and they kind of go, uh, you know, away from experience, which it seems likely they'll do. McPhail's probably the experienced guy. Um, then they could go with someone like Klintek, or, you know, they might say, hey, look, we're the Phillies. You know, we have a huge payroll. Uh, we have, you know, a pretty good farm system now. You know, there's reasons for people to want to come here. Uh, we're going to just go try and poach, right? So, like, they could... I mean, you know, I'm, this is total speculation, but they could go to Chicago and be like, hey, Jed Hoyer, if you don't want to be in Theo Epstein's uh, shadow for the rest of your life, <laughs> come here and put your own brand on things. Go beat Theo at his own game. Um, you know, and, or, you know, maybe they don't even want to go that high profile, but there's probably uh, guys who are, you know, uh, one step away from the GM chair in their own jobs who might not be quite on the precipice of, of getting the, the job where they are who might want to take a take a shot at the GM role in Philadelphia. So um, they could maybe go a little higher profile than Klintak, but, you know, I think he's the name that's thrown out the most often. Okay. All right. That's good. You, uh, you're close to fulfilling your obligation. I just want to ask you one question, though. Um, I, I've, uh, I've been reading some of the literature of urban design recently. Uh, mm. I read one book uh, – um, You're gonna ask me about this? Yeah, yeah. No, I'm gonna ask you in a second. I have, I'm just providing a brief uh, preface to my comment. Okay. To my question, right? Is right. Uh, I asked because Matthew Corey studied urban design. He's a graduate student, I believe. I think. That's I think true. that's true. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I said, well, what's the seminal text? He suggested I read City Life by Vitold Rybczynski, which is essentially a history of how. Um, towns and cities developed in the United States. And I'm reading another book right now called Happy City, uh, which is not by a designer but by an, uh, a journalist who's um, essentially writing a, uh, I guess, a, you know, a large review of, of the work in the modern – because the other book was from 1993. This one's from 2013, so 20 years later. Anyways, I guess I was uh, – one thing I'm curious about is uh, how people interact with cities and the effect that cities have on their residents. I was going to ask you about Winston-Salem, where you live. Uh, and I was going to ask you, what to what degree do you think Winston-Salem does or does not facilitate happiness amongst its residents? Uh, yeah, it's an interesting question because actually my wife and I have considered lately uh, relocating potentially, and we've talked about different places we might move or mm-hmm. where we'd be willing to live, and you know potentially with our 
our parents reaching retirement age, would we want to move closer to them? My parents are in Seattle. Her parents are here. Um, you know, so like the, the happiness we get from our city is something we've discussed a little bit lately or more than a little bit maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the primary way in which Winston produces happiness for its people is by having no economy and keeping prices low. Uh, maybe the having no economy doesn't make everyone happy, but for people who have jobs that are not reliant on the economy, like myself, uh, the right. low cost of living is fantastic and right. makes moving somewhere else challenging because you're, you get used to like everything being cheap. I mean, when I was in Seattle, uh, a couple weeks ago and, uh, my mom lent us her car to drive down to Portland and hang out for a day. And when we we're driving back, we had to pay $3 and 40 cents a gallon to fill up her, her vehicle. And we get back to Winston and it's 203. And I was like, man, that is a striking difference in gas prices. Uh, and you know, I think like across the board, Winston is just a, a very cheap place to live. And, um, I think in terms of like planning, uh, I don't think they planned that necessarily, but that is certainly one of the big perks of, uh, smaller cities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's, uh, so, uh, as, uh, so Charles Montgomery is the author of this, this the text I'm currently reading. And, uh, one sort of, uh, phenomenon he brings up is the fact that those cities which are sort of regarded as most desirable um, for, you know, for whatever reason, because they offer culture um, <clears throat> and, you know, because uh, or maybe because, you know, they're they're beautiful and they offer walkability, et cetera. One of the problems with them is that by virtue of being regarded uh, as desirable, that actually makes them undesirable. Right. Because this is kind of the restaurant problem too, right? Like as soon as you end up on like one of those like 50 best restaurants in the world, you can't get in. No one can get in there anymore. So like you want to eat at like the 51st best restaurant in the world. Right. Yeah. You right. So as soon as you find out that it's on the list, you might as well. Right. Like I mean, there's clearly a tipping point where like you know if you do any research about like where to live, there's these lists and now generally slideshows like thanks Buzzfeed. but, you know, like the, the top 10 whatever places to live if you bike or have a dog or want to retire with no money or whatever it is. Like there's lists for everything. But, you know, all of these little play, kind of places generally rank the same city. I mean, they're borrowing content from each other, essentially. <laughs> they're not doing original research. Uh, so they're all just copying it. So, like, you know, if you do any kind of research whatsoever on, like, you know, where where should my parents retire, you're going to get a lot of answers about, like, Arizona like and Florida and, you know, like, the, all the places that people do retire because there's, like, low taxes and it's warm and, you know, all those reasons. Uh, but, you know, it's not um, providing any new insight that anyone didn't already know. So I, I've been, like, trying to be, like, like I, what I want to find is, like, the the – 11 through 20 list, like the list of like places that are just not quite good enough to make everyone's top 10, but are still pretty cool. But no one's publishing that. Right. Well, as soon as they did, then you, that's not the list that you would want. Exactly. Yeah. So it's one of those things. It's like publication ruins the reason for publication. Right. So you have to apply your own, essentially your own preferences to, to the place where you'd want to live or where you'd want your parents to live. But again, it gets tricky when people have different preferences. I will say, like, you know, talking to my to my dad and my brother, like, we're trying to see if there's some way of like, getting the family back together. My brother lives in Los Angeles. I live in North Carolina. Um, my parents live in Seattle. So, we're, you know, we're not really – we don't see each other all that often. And so we were discussing, like, the variables of, like, what would go into a place where we'd all enjoy living. And my brother's like, I really like, like, warm tropical climates. And my dad's like, <laughs> I really like it cool. Like, I don't want it to be hotter than, like, 75 ever. Like, I want the high – the record high for the year to be, like, 75 or 80. He wants to live like, like with New Brunswick, Canada. 
No, he wants to live in Seattle. Yeah, <laughs> He's been in Seattle for 40 years. He likes that temperature. And I was like, so we have to find a city that is 90 and 75 at the same time. That's <laughs> going to be a challenge. You need to def- to defy laws of climate. What we're what we're trying to do is find like uh where a mountain town uh that would be like 20 degrees cooler than some metropolis exists uh nearby. Yeah, right. So you could like have this like really hot spot where my brother could live, and then like this cooler, you know, town up in the foothills, uh, not too terribly far away. But there are a few of those. They're just really expensive. What's an example of one of those? The Bay Area, I'm like Northern oh, California. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. like you know, large parts of California are desert and hot, and then you know the Bay Area is very cool, and also two million dollars to rent a one bedroom condo. Yeah, it's too much. It's too yeah. much there. Too much. All right. Yeah. Now you have fulfilled your obligation. Thanks. Yeah. If any people out there have like really brilliant ideas on uh, uh, solving my climate dilemma, let me know. Yeah. Oh, and I'll reiterate something I mentioned in the podcast that went up with Jeff today. If you can help, if you can help my wife get a job in Canada, uh, can she learn how to make poutine? No. Well, she could learn how to do she that. Could. It's just French fries. In particular, poutine. Montreal would be great. Yeah, but they have it across all of Canada. Yeah, but, but the Montreal is the place where I think where we'd want to live. Oh. Yeah. Right. Okay. So you need uh, or Toronto. a job I Toronto. from... I live in Toronto. Yeah, Toronto's expensive. I guess it is, huh? Yeah. Uh, so you would need a job for a French-speaking person in a French-speaking province, and this is a problem? She speaks English, too, so that's good. Right, but the fact that she speaks French should make Yeah, things. but the problem is that's her, that's her one skill is that she speaks French really well, which is a skill that a lot of the people there have. No, but that makes her more employable, right? Because if she only spoke English, she can only work in like the non-French speaking part of the mm-hmm. Montreal. So now yeah. she can work in like all of Montreal. But doesn't she have to prove that she can do a job that, that, uh, a Canadian? Well, yeah, she has to have some, some other skill. <laughs> she can't just be like, I speak I know, French, I think right? she only has one skill. Oh. Well, I don't know, that's... she can, uh, she's threatening, I find. Oh, maybe she could be a hitman. A hit, hit woman? A hit woman, yeah. yeah. A bilingual hit woman? <laughs> yeah, that's right. She can threaten your life in two languages. Yeah. It's a little bit more – it's not quite as obvious that, like, she's threatening in, in sort of a – yeah, we'll have to think about it. She'd be like a good – like, she'd be like a good, like, passive-aggressive villain. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I, don't, I don't think passive-aggressive woman is, like, uh, the next Marvel superhero. Uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, like, it's Thor and the passive-aggressive girl. <laughs> it's a it's, – yeah, it's a little bit more of a subtle type of yeah. villain – villainy, villainry. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Dave Cameron. You're welcome, Carson Sestouli. That has been uh, Managing Editor Dave Cameron. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.